Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Uh, no greater way you've ever shown it than in the sacrifice of your son on our behalf. And any believer who has been truly converted to be a follower of you, a family member of yours, when we speak of the cross and the sacrifice of your son, we feel, we sense the intense love of you. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. It is such a beautiful reminder of love. Lord, we pray that we would think about that, meditate on it, preach it to ourselves, sing it. Lord, may it never grow old, but only more beautiful as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We pray that you would help us tonight as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers chapter 12 is the chapter I will be attempting to get through tonight. We have been walking with the nation of Israel. They have now left Mount Sinai, and they have started this journey that's going to take them to the border of the promised land. There we know they'll reject God and be turned away, and they will spend 40 years wandering the wilderness while that whole generation dies off. But if that wasn't a problem, you begin to look at just the trip there, there was all kinds of issues going on. Chapter 11, we saw the effects of this mixed multitude, this very worldly group that was with them. And there was a complaining spirit that came about in them and, and God consumed some of the outward parts of the camp. And, but that affected the nation and they began to cry out and want to return back to slavery in a sense. Let us go back to Egypt. There, there's pots of meat and leeks and onions and so forth. And they began to grumble and complain. And so God said, you want meat? I'll send you some meat. And they died choking on it uh, because of their grumbling and complaining. And they're just on the way to the promised land. Well, chapter 12, we come to another example of murmuring and really a rejection of God. But this chapter is difficult. Because this chapter comes from a very close source to Moses. Coming from his brother and sister. This is, this is hard hitting when you start to look at this passage. This is family who... Reject what you have done. Reject what God has done in your life. Those nearest to Moses, both naturally and spirit, spiritually, now are falling prey to this complaining spirit. Started on the outskirts of camp, worked its way in. Now it's to those who are closest. This is hard. I think there's probably plenty of people in this room who have had difficulty with family member over the things of God in your life. There's nothing more difficult, is there? Maybe it's children, maybe it's siblings, maybe it's parents, whatever it may be. When these issues arise, they are difficult. Uh, a lot of our counseling um, within our ministries is often helping uh, people speak clearly the word God's word because they're caught in some crazy thing over here and they're trying to share the truth of God's word with them, but there's such hard feelings at times. Counseling or 
confronting family members brings a new level of heartbreak. I don't know if you know that. I think many of you do. It brings a new level of heartbreak, uh, whether you're in the ministry full-time or not. But this text here does not provide all the details uh, that happened here, but it's a narrative, so we can imagine um, the broken-heartedness of Moses. He basically remains very silent in this text, except for an intercession on behalf of Aaron and Miriam. But he remains silent as he is attacked. I broke this down into really two thoughts in the scriptures and then two applications as I work my way through this text. But let's look at the first verse and and the point number one, a humble mediator and God's undeniable stamp of approval. Verse 1, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Well, it's hard to understand what fully is behind this, but here's what it's not hard to understand. There's an issue going on at the heart of this issue. Miriam and Aaron are going to challenge Moses on his position as the central leader of God's people. They're going to challenge his position as his God-given right that he speaks face-to-face with God here. The marriage, and I think I can prove this or at least give some explanation here, to this supposed Cushionite woman, I think is an excuse for the attack. The real issue is... That there is resentment for Moses' authority here. But before that issue, I think we have to consider who this woman is. This is a a passage that, man, I read a ton of people on this, and everybody seemed to have a different opinion on it. But I'll I'll tell you where I kind of landed. Trying to identify this Cushite woman isn't isn't easy, but uh, I, I think we can at least get in the ballpark. The early church fathers really believed it's Zipporah. Uh, This goes all the way back to Augustine um, and many others in the early church. uh, All the way into the Reformers, Calvin believed it was Zipporah, his actual wife. Um, They believe it's the daughter of the Mennonite uh, priest. And they base that on the fact that there's no evidence of her death. The Bible doesn't show that she's dead um, here, and it's not mentioned up to this point. And and they believed it was inappropriate (laughs) to charge this man that God had set apart, and Calvin actually says this, that they would charge the holy prophet of God with this. And so they held to that that this was the wife, his original wife, Zipporah. Now, some of the basis that they hold that to is the Hebrew word for Cush here was used of several distinct groups that were around the area. One, they were Ethiopian group. Um, that had that Cush name. Um, you can see it in the Hebrew there if you look it up. Uh, there was a region of people within Ethiopia that were called that. There was another region just east of Babylon that had that title as well. And then there was a group in northern Arabia with that. And this is where a lot of the early church fathers believe this is where the, Men- the uh, Mennonite group of, of Jethro's family was from and their range of where they Uh, grazed their animals came down to about where Moses would have been at the burning bush and so forth. 
And so many of them believe that this northern Arabian group was uh, part of that Cushite line of people. And so they hold to that. However, Sephora um, may have died on the other side of it. Let me give you the other view. And this is a reference to a second marriage. And there are other commentators and people believe that Miriam negative posture is because of she's mad. Um, she, he married another woman and it was recent. Uh, some of the commentators uh, base their view on the fact that Moses' marriage to Zipporah um, really was many years ago. So why would she be bringing it up so intently now? But then again, people can be resentful and harbor that for a long time till something triggers it, right? If you've ever had this happen to you, they'll bring up something from so long ago and uh, they've been harboring that till something ticked them off or some kind of jealousy pushed them forward and they bring it out. And so, uh, again, I, I'm not sure what, what has exactly happened here, but if we have evidence that Sephora's death, that would, that would help, right? But we don't. And so this word Cush might be referring to this Northern Arabian group, but quite frankly, there's just no way to know. And I tend to think that, here's my, here's my opinion, let me tell you right. I don't think Moses would have married outside the nation of Israel after the law had been handed to him. And so I tend to think that this is probably still her, but nevertheless, uh, Moses had left Egypt, he had gone out into the wilderness, married outside of the family and all of that, and she could have been harboring his first son. A long time, but that's not the real issue. The real issue is in verse two. Look at, and they—that would be Miriam and Aaron—said, "Has the Lord indeed spoken?" Here's some key words here: only through Moses. Now, now notice it's not directed right at Moses. This is a statement. They're they're making this statement probably publicly. Has he not spoken? Look at this through us as well. And then there's a little phrase here, we'll get back to this in a second, and the Lord heard it. Now, it's important to recognize that Miriam and Aaron, I don't think in this statement are questioning the position of, of Moses and, his, and even his right to lead here, but they are calling into question his uniqueness of his prophetic ministry compared to theirs. And this is where the problem lays. We also see no reason in this verse or any of the previous verses that Moses had done something to forfeit this. We, we don't see where Moses was abandoned to the truth of God or, or you know, even his rock-striking episode is, is still farther out. We, we see no reason for this to change. And this is one of the reasons why I believe that the Cushite marriage issue was just simply an excuse to bring up this challenge, Right? There's jealousy here. There's envy. And so there's a clear sinful issue with pride that has made its way to the surface with Miriam and Aaron here. Because notice in verse 3, the humble stated position of Moses is in great contrast, right? Here they say in verse 2, God only speaking through Moses? I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical question like, hey, what about us? But then the word of God puts this in. Now, now listen to this. The man Moses was very humble. And then this phrase, this is astounding. More than any man who was on the face of the earth. So there's a great contrast that's being brought to the surface here. 
And I believe Moses was so humble, one of the reasons, because he was speaking with God face to face. Now that should humble you. Now before you go, well, boy, you know, I would be humble too if God spoke face to face with me. Every day, it's on your phone, it's on your pad, it's on your refrigerator, right? Speaking with God, and that's what we do, the word speaks to us, right? I, I, don't, I don't mind using those terms, I think those are okay. God's word speaks to us, doesn't it? We're not talking about some divine revelation in the clouds part and God tells me something. He speaks to us through his word and that humbles us, right? And so there's a great marker here about Moses because he's spending time with God in his direct revelation and it has made this man an incredible humble man. Now, instead of giving glory to God for the gift of prophecy, the problem is Aaron and Miriam seem to magnify their own gifts in verse 2 through a kind of, you can see it, there's a sinful boasting about their own giftedness. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? What, what about us? And it seems possible through the humility of Moses here, stated in verse 3, that he, he was willing to let this resentment pass. He, there's, there's no word of him until later, right? He seems to, well, that's how you feel. <laughs> he doesn't react to it, at least in the scriptures. But the problem is, God does. God reacts here. And he reacts quite strongly, doesn't he? And he is not willing to let that sinful jealousy pass. He knows what that corruption will create when it's that high, that close to Moses, that in that realm of leadership, in that realm of uh, family there, how intense that must have been for Moses when his own family comes at him that way, God's not going to let that go. And he does something about it. So verse 2, again, look at the end of verse 2. The Lord heard it. The Lord heard it. One old commentator said it this way, this passage teaches us that although good and gentle refrain, speaking of Moses, from reproaches and accusations, God nevertheless keeps watch for them, and whilst they are silent, that Moses, the wicked and the ungodlies cries out to and is heard by God. It's good to know that, right? His ear is attentive to us. The Bible tells us, right? He's attentive to us, Lord. His, the ear of God listens to us. But he also is listening to the wicked. <laughs> he does not hear their prayers in the same way we would, but he would hear their grumbling and their complaining and their attacks against his chosen. And so this old commentator is reminding us that though Moses was willing to say, I won't take offense at this, God did. Now look with me at verse 4. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meetings. So the three of them came out. Well, notice the Lord's response there. It's very swift, isn't it? It's swift and it's decisive. And God summons all three of them to this tent of meetings, to the tabernacle, right? And now the tabernacle is the place of the meeting of God. And it is the, 
It is in the meeting place of God that he will give his divine pronouncement on this challenge and this complaint. And as we watch this nation, he takes on every challenge. He does not let them go by. And he'll have a point, we'll see it in Numbers, where he'll say, this, these ten times you have complained against me. So he is watching this and listening. It's almost like God is saying to them, you want to hear from me? You want a word from God? Come to the meeting tent. I don't know about you, but verse 4 would scare me. You three come out to the tent of meetings. I mean, when I was studying this, I thought, you know, my mind goes back to you know, elementary school. And the, you know, the principal opens the door and says, you. <laughs> you know that feeling. Mostly because you knew you got caught. And you're headed for the meeting. Ah, I mean, just I, as I studied that, all you know, the nightmares of my poor behavior came out when I was young. But clearly, Miriam and Aaron are brought to the front and center of this. I think Moses is probably in the background. Look, at, it says in the last part of verse 5, it says, when they had bo- both come forward. I, I think there's a front and center. Moses is like... <laughs> And they're brought before the Lord for this grumbling and complaining and really which is built on jealousy. And and, and verse 5 is just quite chilling, isn't it? Then the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and he stood at the doorway of the tent. I mean, you can see that scene, (laughs) I mean, this is way worse than your mother saying, when your father gets home. <laughs> this is God. This is God coming down in the pillar, meeting with them. And I would imagine the hair was up on the back of their necks. And wow, that sin has come front and center, I hope, as they thought about this. Look at verses 6 through 8 as we begin to hear God speak. He said, hear now my words. You want a word from God? You think you're a prophet or a prophetess? You want a word from God? Here it is. I think that's just <laughs> profound, right? And profoundly inspired because it's the word of God. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision, and I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? Wow. I mean, knees are knocking and they've already seen people die choking on meat. Uh, outer, outer group struck by fire. And now they're right there in the tent of the meetings watching the Lord descend on that. And he's speaking extremely direct language to them. I I don't want to be on the other side of God, right? Praise the Lord, we're his children, and he deals with us in discipline versus punishment, right? He disciplines the ones he loves. But notice first, there are various ways in which God speaks to prophets, right? We see it, and even in his verses, help us do this, particularly Old Testament. He made known his ways to them, particularly through visions and dreams. Now, I've had some dreams lately, and I get up and I go, man, that's a really weird dream. 
you know, I think I was playing baseball, but I can't quite remember because there was this really weird guy that was out there. And I, I what was that? They're kind of foggy, huh, right? Every once in a while you have a really clear dream and you wake up and you go, honey, I've got to tell you about this. Because you finally had some little bit of clarity to some dream, right? You, go, you try to remember. Now, was that because of the Italian I ate last night or, you know, what, what, what caused all that? These things are foggy, right? And oh, there's whole groups. I'm going to get into this on Sunday a little bit in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm, having such a, I'm already deep into 14. I can't wait to teach it on Sunday. Um, uh, but man, you go, why do you want to get caught up on anything that is so mystical and, 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 and very hard to understand and not clear? That's what Paul is going to be pushing them on. And, and so he's, I think what he's doing here is he's showing this massive difference between the way in which God makes himself known to people, like in this case Aaron and Miriam, and other people like his chosen prophet, his chosen leader, Moses. And what a mark of a man or a woman in these Old Testament days that they were marked as a prophet, that they would receive dreams and vision. And that's, that's amazing. And I, I think it's incredible. And we should never try to dismiss that. That's how God ministered and spoke and led in the Old Testament. There was no uh, scriptures for them. He did things in miraculous ways. And I think that's wonderful. And it seems to me, as I study this, that both Aaron and Miriam fall into this category of prophet. They, they were the kind of prophet that got visions and dreams. That's how God spoke to them. So you go, well, Miriam's a prophetess? Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. Miriam, the prophetess. Aaron's sister took the, t- the timber in her hands and all the women went them went out to, uh, to dance. This is after the drowning. You remember in chapter 15 of Exodus, all the drowning of e- Egyptian army. Uh, Moses and the congregation sing this great song that the writer and, has been, and the horse has been cast into the sea. And then at the end of it, the Bible says, Miriam, the prophetess. So God was doing something pretty supernatural through this woman in some kind of forms of dreams and visions, right? And, and declaring himself and in some kind of prophecy of, I'm going to take you here, trust Moses. I mean, whatever it was, I don't, the Bible doesn't tell us. And then you have Aaron. Aaron in, in the, uh, Exodus 4 is told that God would speak through uh, Moses and Aaron would be Moses' prophets, right? And so there's this speaking of God's word down through Moses to Aaron and Aaron would speak to Pharaoh and the leaders, right? So... They have this badge, and I think that's really clear in this text. God is not saying, you're not a prophet. He's just saying, you're not Moses. <laughs> I'm not talking to you like I'm talking to him. He is the one who mediates, not you. And notice in the text, there's only one mediator. And we'll see that. That's a real key to understanding what God's doing here. But notice in verse 7, there's a great, great contrast here too. I, you know me, I love picking out phrases and words, and they just kind of jump all over you. I love the little phrase, not so. <laughs> I have that circle in my Bible. It's emphatic, right? It's a strong statement. You guys get dreams and vision, but not so with my man, Moses. He's a type of my son who's going to come. So I deal with him very, very differently than you. 
And notice the personal pronouns that come around Moses, right? With my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my household. There's a connection, a very close connection between God and Moses here. This isn't said of Aaron and Miriam. He's not just a servant that looks over part of the house. He has been given the entire house. The language is very similar to Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. It says this, verse 5. And it came about, remember Joseph got sold into slavery and he ends up in Potiphar's home. And it came about from that time he made him overseer, Potiphar made him overseer of his house and over all that he owned. And the Lord blessed the Egyptian house on the account of Joseph. Thus, thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field, so that everything he owned in Joseph's, was in Joseph's charge. And with him he withheld nothing. Right? And later when, you know, Potiphar's wife, little Jezebel she was, she tries to grab, grab him and, and seduce him. He says... Your husband has given me everything, charge over everything but you. (laughs) Why would I do this? Why would I sin against God? So it's this very similar language. And again, Joseph is a type that looks forward to Christ as well. Moses is a type that looks forward to Christ. They're not not Christ. They're just a type and they're flawed. but, But the Bible uses it to point forward. And so there's that similar language. At times of Israel's rebellion, God threatens even to wipe out. We saw this earlier when they are worshiping the the golden calf. Um, God threatens to wipe out the nation and start over with Moses. This is the type of relationship that he has. Now, it was a test for Moses and how he would intercede, and he would take on that role, and Moses did intercede, and God did not wipe out the nation. Now, all of the instruction from the tabernacle to the law was given to Moses, verbally. If you're reading through the Bible, you're probably in... Exodus and Leviticus, maybe right now, if you're if you're reading through um, chronologically through or something like that, I was thinking about because I'm that's where I'm at, and I was reading this the other day. God is telling him about gold rings. I want this many rings. I want loops here. I mean, it is so deep. It's not some dream or fuzzy thing. And again, when you're reading through it, and it goes, it's kind of repetitive. Remember when we talked through this? And I tried to take some bigger chunks there. It's pretty repetitive about how to build these things. And then, and then he, he gives a spirit of, of craftsmanship to certain men. And, and then it goes back through it all again and again. But all of that, even those littlest details about gold rings and how many were supposed to be on there and what the stitching was going to be like and what colors were this and all that, that's God talking to Moses. He's not giving him some vague dream and vision where he comes away and goes, man, I'm, I'm going to go back to sleep because I'm not sure what that looked like. God was speaking to him. And so he was faithful over all of the house. And that's the idea here. Notice in verse 8, with him I speak mouth to mouth. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The Hebrew word is often, I think it's used seven times in the Old Testament for words. So it, it could even say this, I speak words to words with him. Isn't that interesting? That's how close that relationship was. If you have a dream or a vision in the Old Testament, you're a prophet or prophetess, you know, it's not like you're having a conversation, you're just asleep and having this vision or dream or something like that. He's speaking word to words with him. Notice, even openly and not in dark sayings. Isn't that so clear? There's all kinds of people who want to get caught up in this stuff today, right? 
So tell me what your vision was. <laughs> I don't understand what you're trying to tell me. But if you want, we could open the Bible and read it word for word really plainly. What God says. Would you mind doing that? See, see, I think even this re- just tells us that, yes, there was unique things. Hebrews says that God spoke in various ways at various times, but now has spoken in his son, right? The Bible's very clear on that. So he spoke through donkeys, right? <laughs> he, he, did, he did amazing things with, throughout before the scriptures were completed. Book of Acts is just, a, a, just incredible, supernatural work of God. But I love this text as I'm thinking of, Rome, of 1 Corinthians 14 to get it ready for Sunday. This, this helps you understand that people can get lost in things that are dark. They get caught up in things that are fuzzy and not clear. God wants to speak words to words with you. That's why we believe the Bible. And, I, and here, what I think it's doing here, not what I think, but I know what it's doing, it's affirming Moses. It's affirming that he's God's man. You want to be sure that you are God's person? Hear his word. Play around with it. Act like you've got some direct line or something else. Boy, you should, you should be careful. Go word to word with God. That's what he's given us this for. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 34, just to... Just to show a cross-reference, verse 10, Moses is dying. He's not going to go into the land. He's, out, he's taken up on Mount Nebo. And the Bible says this, since that time, 30, this is 34.10, Deuteronomy, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, and in this phrase, whom the Lord knew face to face. I really want to meet this guy, don't you? I mean, just the conversations that maybe we'll have in heaven if we so desire. See, the clarity of God's word versus the dark sayings of dreams and visions is just amazing here, isn't it? And notice that we see in verse 8 that he experiences the presence of God. Now, you know when I talk through this, particularly in uh, Exodus 33 and 34 there, uh, that I believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Because the Bible teaches us that no one has seen God and Christ is the... The, the exact representation, and so it's the pre-incarnate Christ here. But notice it says, beholds the form of the Lord. They couldn't even get close to this. They're getting something in fuzzy dreams and visions. He's talking face to face and even in seeing the form of God. Passes over him. I'll put my hand on you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. And Moses gives this great definition of the character of God, of graciousness and loving kindness, and passing it on from generation to generation. It's just amazing truth, right? I mean, I think by this time, Aaron and Miriam are going, man, we really stuck the foot in the mouth this time. There is no comparison to what God is doing with us compared to him. And I think that's what he does. He finally says this in verse 10, and this is where there's just crickets after this statement. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? Can you imagine Pilate standing before God someday? Imagine Pharisees. Can you imagine the person who uses the name of the Lord in vain all the way to the grave? And never repents and turns to Christ. Look at this. You spoke against my servant. And, and again, Moses is this type, right? It's all pointing forward. I remember 
growing up in the ministry and young and still kind of having day jobs and working and all that and riding with cowboys that had really colorful language. And, you know, you have to put up a lot in the world. Many of you know that. You work with people that use foul language all the time. Uh, but it got so precious to me, the name of Christ, I would say, you know, would you swear in Buddha's name or somebody else's <laughs> and just not use my Savior? He's, he's my Savior. Well, what are you talking about? Well, guess what? Now I'm telling them who, who they're talking about. And so you get opportunities to do that. See, that's... This is this pointing forward, right? Now he is recognizing and setting Moses aside as his ordained uh, intermediate uh, man who comes between the nation and God. He's doing that. But remember, everything that Moses is doing, particularly in this role, is pointing forward to somebody greater. And I kept thinking about this. I said, Lord, how many people have spoken against your servant Jesus? Let us not be part of that. Now... I want to show you one cross-reference. Can you go to Acts chapter 21 with me? I think Paul um, is treated somewhat like Moses. And I got thinking about this today and came across this passage. This is a precious passage. Um, I think it shows kind of a similar position in the New Testament without the agitation of Marion and uh, Aaron. I, but, I, but I want to do show you some difference in this. And I, I, think, I hope you can see what I see here. Uh, 21.8. Paul has sailed to Miletus. He's uh, getting ready to... He's just met with the elders of Ephesus. And then he's now in Miletus. And he's stopping and seeing the church along the way. But his goal is Jerusalem and then Rome, right? That's where he's going. Verse 8, on the next day we left, this is Luke writing, the we passages, and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man, now look at this, had four virgin daughters who were prophecies. Isn't that interesting? Four daughters, unmarried, and they're prophecies. As we were staying there for some day, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judah. Okay, so now we have four female prophet, prophetesses. We have another prophet, man, male. And now that's the scene. They're all in this house. They're staying there together. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. This is Abigail, what he's doing. Bound his feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. He's prophesying and he's illustrating what he believes God is telling him to do. What does Paul do with this? Remember, Paul is unique. God chose to do something unique with Paul up and beyond quite a few people. Verse 12, when he heard this, we as well as the local residents began to beg him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For am, I not, for, am, for am I ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent 
remarking, listen to this, the will of the Lord be done. See, Paul knew the will of the Lord. And he was going to fulfill it. And I love this passage because it tells me that these were good people. And I think this is different in the scene. I think Aaron and Miriam have a spirit of jealousy and they desire power. And I think that's probably the problem there. Here, these are good people. I think these are people who love Paul, right? But God had already told Paul, this is where you're going. And he says, what are you doing? Trying to break my heart. You're giving me what you believe the Holy Spirit's telling you. But let me tell you what he's telling me. I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm even going to go in in chains, and I'm even going to die there if I have to. And I, I think that's just a good parallel between Moses and, and Paul and these others here. So I think it's clear that dreams and visions were not the pinnacle of God's communication. I think tongues and a lot of those other things, they were not either. It was God who spoke with people it by his word, like Moses and Paul, and granted them authority to carry out his divine plan. Paul would say things like this, I have a message, my preaching is not in persuasive words, but in demonstration of the spirit and of his power. And so I think both Moses and Paul were unmistakably stamped authorities for ministry by God. He, he unmistakably stamped them out as those men. Second point here, Christ is greater. I just want to hit this real quickly because I've already said some of this, but it's so fun to kind of think about the greater Christ, right? He's, that's the book of Hebrews, right? The New Testament really draws a comparison between Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, right? And the shepherd of the nation of Israel with Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and the good shepherd of God's entire family. Stephen was given his great sermon in Acts chapter 7 verse 37 he said this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel and he's quoting Deuteronomy 18 15 God will raise up prophetic right will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren I'm going to talk about prophecy I mean I believe Moses knew that Christ was coming he believed in the Messiah and he says Look, uh, he's like John the Baptist. I, I baptized you in the waters, one come with fire. Here he's saying there's a greater prophet coming, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we know him. And Paul says it this way, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is no one, for there is, uh, excuse me, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So there's one, and that's the one that was raised. And so you get to Hebrews chapter 3. We took a look at this a little bit in our staff meeting this week. But Moses was over the house of Israel, and it was a good house, and he did a lot of good things. But, but Christ is over the house of God. And it goes into this great detail of, of the high priest, and the one who's over the house is even greater in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews chapter 1, and I mentioned this already, but God spoke in various ways and various times. He spoke through all kinds of things, but now has what? Spoken in his son. Always trumping every vision and theophany and everything else. Christ trumps all of that. He's greater. And I think he, he we, when we look at Moses there, there's this, there's this 
shadow of something better, right? Moses is this man, very humble, the Bible says, more than anyone on the face of the earth, verse 3 says back in our text. But Moses, think about it. Moses was a murderer. He was a runner. He was a giver-upper. He was a frustrated one, right? He was a rock striker. He was denied the promised land. But the Bible says he was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. This is what God does with people, right? He takes us proud and arrogant people and shows us Christ. (laughs) And we bend the knee. This is the beauty of our Savior, isn't it? Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart in Matthew 11, 29. Take my yoke. This is who he was. And Moses, what a beautiful man we see in this passage, right? He's beautiful, isn't he? He's he's humble. He seems to step back and he's being accused falsely of things. And he seems to be quiet and God takes up his case for him. But there's no one like the Lord Jesus who was reviled and threatened but kept trusting himself to the ones who judges righteously. But then there's Jesus. He's God in flesh. We beheld his glory. He's the exact representation of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. See, Moses was humble, but there's no one more humble than the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And that's what Philippians chapter 2 is about. You know, this example of the Lord Jesus Christ who humbled himself, who took on flesh, um, he emptied himself, veiled as deity, set aside his right to all the power that he could have used, but veiled that so he would die, and not only just death, but death of a cross. And because of that, God honored him and gave him the right hand of the Father. And that his name, every name will bow. And so all of this points towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet there's good stuff here, isn't there? It's a reminder. And I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.15. He says, we are a fragrance of Christ. And so when we spend time with Jesus, that wears off on us, doesn't it? Now we become like Christ. That's the whole goal. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that he is conforming us, changing us, moving us along, presently doing this to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, look, I'm always caring about in myself the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifest through me. So this humility of Christ and dying to self is part of the Christian life, isn't it? See, this is the message of our crucified Savior And this is what we preach effectively and we live effectively because those who have been crucified with Christ. But back into our text, we find Aaron and Miriam. And they should have recognized. They should have recognized God's divine authority given to Moses. But they don't because that's what happens. When, When pride and jealousy starts to get in your mind, you don't recognize what God is doing in somebody else's life. And so you push yourself to the front. And so this envy and jealousy made them not afraid, as that's what the Bible says, not afraid, that's what God said, to challenge him. They should have been afraid. And I think they are now. (laughs) As the pillar of God descends upon them. Aaron and Miriam were given particular gifts, beautiful gifts. She's called a prophetess. She encouraged the whole nation with song and dance and uh, she's, she's, the, she's the sister of Moses. Aaron has become the mouthpiece in Egypt of, of Moses. 
They had tremendous gifts, and they should have been satisfied with what God was doing. And I think the lesson for us is we we got to be satisfied where God plants us, right? Way back in 1 Corinthians 3, we saw that where God puts us in a row. He puts us where he wants us. He plants us where he wants us. Out west, there's massive acreage of just sunflowers. When you look at them, you drive by there, and they're all turning with the sun, you know, as it goes. I mean, acres and acres and acres of them. And none of them look distinct, right? They're all the same. I think sometimes that's what we want. We want to be different. And yet God's put us in a row. He's given us the opportunity. He chose us. He put us there. He wants us to bask in the sun of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and fulfill what God has for us. We're going to see this happen again, right? Korah and his group. They're going to rise up. And guess what happens to them? <laughs> right? That's what happens. Third, God's reaction to sinful jealousy. We've got to move a little quicker here. Um, but look at verse 9 and 10. So the anger of the Lord burned against them. That's Aaron and Moses. Uh, excuse me. Miriam and, and, and Aaron. The Lord burned against them. The anger of the Lord burned against them. And he departed. But when the cloud had drawn from the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow, and Aaron turned towards Miriam, behold, she was a leopard. Now, Aaron and Miriam have clearly acted very foolishly. But now, as this pillar of cloud lifts, as God departs from them, the scene turns to this woman who now has leprosy as white as snow. Can you imagine? This is final stages. This is death sitting there. This is a sentence of death on her as God leaves. See, he found them guilty. And notice the sentence was immediate as he withdraws himself from the tabernacle. And I know you've been saying, well, why not Aaron? Why, why doesn't this happen to him I don't know. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of people write on this. Most people kind of land that he was the high priest. And God spared him so that he would be clean to go offer sacrifices, probably for Miriam. And that's I, I, probably where I would land on that. But I think it also reveals that Miriam might have been the spearhead of this jealousy. It might have been her that envious nature, that jealousy rose up in her and Aaron, like he did with the golden calf, sat back and said, well, it just came out of the fire. Again, another, I, I believe, and this is my thoughts here, another role of a male advocating his role from keeping a female from a poor decision. Start it in the garden and we see those. Those are, those are my thoughts that you can think about through that. Notice verse 11 and 12. Then Aaron said to Moses, isn't it interesting how quickly they turned to Moses? Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not, on account, do not account this sin to us in which we, plural, have acted foolish, in which we, plural, have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Wow. I mean, Aaron, seeing the judgment that had fallen upon his sister, turns to Moses, the one that he was trying to 
stand against at one moment, but now sees this is the true man of God, turns to him. He includes himself in the foolishness of his sin, of his sister's sin as well. And clearly their appeal to Moses is a definite recognition of God's given authority to him versus his own. And he knows that Moses is the way to God. Isn't that salvation in a picture? She's dying. The wages of sin. She's dying. Oh God, give us a gift. The gift of God is Jesus Christ. I mean, this all just points so clearly to this, doesn't it? And, and, and Moses, in this gracious, humble man, he possesses the power to intercede with God, and he does this on behalf of her. Look at verse 13. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Oh God, heal her, I pray. What an amazing intercession. Well, I don't know. Some of the things you said really hurt. No, not a hesitation. Oh God, heal her. This is... This is the graciousness and mercy of Moses. He graciously intercedes. He knows what she needs. She knows, he knows, he, she needs the healing that only God can give. If God doesn't heal her, she dies. We sing a lot of songs and we thank God for our healing, don't we? And it has nothing to do with our physical, does it? God healed us, didn't he? Because the wages of sin is death and he healed us. And so Moses graciously intercedes. He's ready, he's willing, he's quick, right? And God grants healing and restoration to Miriam. But there are a little bit of consequences, aren't there? Look at verse 14. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had put spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Well, first of all, Moses' willingness to forgive is, is amazing, and I think that pictures Christ. And so that makes me think about Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, right? So, so Miriam and Aaron are trying to draw near to God through Moses, because that's the mediator at the time. But we, we know that he is a picture of something to come. He is a type. So we draw close to God through Jesus Christ. And then it says this, speaking about Jesus in Hebrews 7.25, he is always lives to make intercession for them. And do, don't you see that with Moses here? No hesitation. God healer. God healer. And so this rejection, though, of God's choice leader has left her with some consequences. And the Bible uses an illustration that's kind of a gross analogy, isn't it? If a father would spit in the face of his daughter, she would be unclean, right? She would not be able to go to temple. She would not be able to go into the tabernacle. And so God reminds them, yes, I will heal you, but there are consequences. And you're going to need to trust me through these things. And so not only is that a reminder of the sin of rebellion and rejection, but there's a reminder that sin without the cleansing of God leaves us unclean. And, and, and there's two groups of people in heaven. There's those who have been cleansed by the 
finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's those who remain in the filth of sin. That's the two groups. There's no one in between. And it's a reminder. And I think it's not God being mean. In fact, there's nothing but graciousness to God, to Miriam. He could have let her just rot away, as the text tells us. But yet he shows this is what happens when you rebel against me. This is, and it's, a, it's a teaching moment to the nation, but they don't seem to, seem to learn. So Miriam, verse 15, was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move until Miriam was received again. Afterwards, however, the people, verse 16, moved to Hazareth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Well, Miriam's sin really held up the whole entire nation. I mean, you, this is Christmas, man. This is the promised land. This is a place flowing with milk and honey. And now we're stopped seven days because this woman rebelled against God. And it just shows you the effects of sins, right? Why we have to confess it, have short accounts, get right with God, because it affects those around us, and we see that. And their consequences fell on others. Well, finally, let me just close with just a few more spiritual lessons here. I call them spiritual lessons number four for the, from, four from the wilderness, it should be, sorry. Uh, despite not knowing exactly who the Cushite woman is, because uh, I, I, I have my thoughts on it, but even if Moses transgressed, right, and he transgressed the law in, or he committed polygamy or whatever, if this is not his wife, if this is not Zipporah, it seems God still forgives him and clears him of this. If, if you want to go that side, it's, it's the reason why I think she probably is, but He's just a good God, right? And, 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 and as I looked at this, I stood back and I thought, you know, Moses isn't perfect. He's a type, but boy, he has some problems, right? There's a few things that go on. Remember, he does not go into the promised land. He tries to take the authority of God away as he strikes that rock. We'll get into that. So he's not innocent. And yet, when we step back and look at Moses, particularly in Hebrews chapter 11, and I don't have time to take you there, but he is by faith, by faith, by faith, he is a man remembered for his love for God, his trust in God, his trust that God was going to bring them into a, a greater land. And he's remembered that way. And I think we see so many people like this, right? King David, oh, adultery, murder, lies. I mean, oh, and, and then God says, he's a man after my own heart. Sarah, uh, I like to use men and women so both of us can get our mind around it because I still believe in gender. Um, see how I snuck that in? Um, Sarah, yeah, right, yeah, we're going to have a baby. Ha, ha. Um, by the way, I've already given him a handmaiden, and we have all kinds of nations going, oh, it's just a mess, right? God sees her as a holy woman of old in, in First uh, Peter chapter 3. See, that's what God does. He's so kind to us. He does not, he not only forgives our sins, he chooses never to bring them up. But again, as we look at Miriam and Aaron here, most likely the problem was not Moses' wife. It was a deep-seated jealousy. And we have to be careful of those things, right? Search our hearts. Is there something that we're, we're, we want that God does not want for us? Did I say that clear enough? I mean, I have to think through things in my own life, right? That's why, that's why I preach this way. There's things that I may desire that God does not desire for me. And I have to let those things go. And I have to say, God, I'm good with what you're doing. Because if not, if you pursue into something that God has not led you into that, you try to take hold of something that he has not given you, there will be great consequences. And I think this passage reminds us of this. 
And so I think there's a heart issue that's being exposed here. On the other hand, God was speaking to Moses, and he was obeying God's word to the T most of the time, right? And, and I think one more lesson is here, and let me just say this to you, because some of you, you have family members that won't talk to you, or you're, or you're just, you know, you're the, you never get invited to Thanksgiving, or you fear Thanksgiving, or because you're a Christian, right? I know, I know many of your stories you've told me. Let me tell you, when you stand for God like Moses did and obey God's word, the Bible says over and over, Moses told the nation and he led them into obedience. When you do that, that will be a costly life. People will not put up with it. They'll just be bothered by your stance. And again, you have to do everything you can, be loving and kind and help them understand that you're obeying God, you're not attacking them. I mean, you can do all those things, but it's costly to walk with God. It's costly. And I think Moses, though the narrative doesn't tell us, I imagine his heart sunk as his family members came and attacked him. It'll cost you to follow Jesus. When Jesus was teaching the disciples on his way to the cross, he was telling them over and over that you've got to take up the cross and follow me. There's death. And by the way, you've got to eat me. John chapter 6. You've got to consume me. The Bible says that they, from that time on, they said, these sayings are too hard. And, and John says, and many of his disciples followed him no more. It's hard. It's hard to follow Jesus in a world that's going dead against him. Well, since the nation left Mount Sinai, there has been multiple rejections of God. Started with this mixed multitude out on the fringe moved inward and the people began to complain and want meat. And now we run into a very close situation, family members rejecting Moses. And the tombstones continue to mount up, don't they? And outside of the grace of God, think about this, there would have been one more tombstone, Miriam's. But God was gracious to her. And we don't see any more problems with her from here on out, but it doesn't show that there's evidence that she goes into the promised land. But in closing, what we'll see over the next few weeks is now we've seen the outskirts and we've seen family. What we're going to see next week is we're going to see the entire nation except a couple of guys named Caleb and Joshua. All the rest are going to say, no way. We do not believe you, God. And we're going to see that come down on them. I believe there's real enemies to the plan of God. I I really believe that people hate the plan of God and they're going to rise up. And there's going to be people who have even tasted the word of God, who have even been at church or or someone like that. I don't know if you've had this, I've had this. And they're going to be the worst enemies to the plan of God. And we have to say, God, even if all forsake me, I will follow you. Are you willing to do that? I think it's one of the lessons here. And so... I think this is what Jesus said the night before his death. In me, you'll have peace. In the world, you're going to have what? Tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Amen. Father, thank you for a reminder. This short little passage packs so much uh, application. It's hard to live for you and walk with you in our flesh, Lord. In fact, we just get tired and we react in our flesh and very difficult for us. 
But when we trust you and believe in your divine love and care and salvation that you've granted us, and we keep focused on your gospel, Lord, we can walk through the different difficult trials and temptations and tribulations because we can find peace in the middle of that. And though I think humanly about Moses and I think, oh, that must have been so difficult, maybe he did have that peace that Jesus spoke of so many years later. Maybe he had that peace of knowing that obedience gives you peace. And so I I thank you for that example. But thank you for reminding us that you're an overcomer. You overcome all this. You've already won the battle. You've already won the war. It's all done. We know that, Lord. You're, you, you've finished it all at the cross for us. And so we must finish this life for you. And bring you worship and glory. And we must enter into your glory, even through times of tribulation. But we'll enter in as overcomers because you overcame for us, Lord. So I pray many are encouraged to hear today. Lord, strengthen them. Strengthen myself. We give you all the praise and glory for what's been said and sung and done here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.